Season's greetings, friends, and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. This has been an interesting year for Breakfast in the Ruins. We passed our third year of podcasting back in September. I made it to 50 earlier this year. This is our 50th show, if we don't include our short introductory episode zero, of course, which, for these purposes, I won't. We also have 50 active patrons shelling out to support the upkeep of Breakfast in the Ruins. On last year's Christmas stroke birthday special, we also celebrated 25,000 downloads on Podbean. We've not quite doubled that in year three, but we have topped 46,000, so a big upwards curve there. Also, in YouTube land, we've passed 280 subscribers, we've had almost 30,000 views, and 100,000 minutes watched. Microscopically small beans by YouTube standards, obviously, but as the YouTube upload is just a bonus feature of the Podbean service, and not something I've delved into with any great effort, I'll take it. We've also found new listeners along the way thanks to that upload, so, if you listen that way, thanks for finding us and calling into Darian Toms. As I've mentioned previously though, the majority of our YouTube traffic comes in via our episodes on Sven Hassel's Wheels of Terror, and our first Halloween special, on The Rats. They account for a whopping 75% of total views, and over half of the total minutes watched. Astonishing, really. Those algorithms, eh? On Wheels of Terror, by the way, Robbo is closing in on setting a date for following up with part two. About time, really. It's going on 21 months since part one, and so far, that's our record gap. The previous being a year between phases two and three of the final programme with Hussein, and we're 14 months on from phase three, with phase four, aka the last days of man on earth, there's a clue, sitting in the to-do pile. Anyway, it's Mike's birthday, it's Phil's birthday, and... A couple of weeks back, we got a message from friend of the show, Sebastian Weetabix, and he said, Morning Andy, from sunny Manchester. Loved the recent podcasts on the Black Corridor and the Fog. Please thank Phil particularly for her observations on Mr Herbert's misogynistic anti-heroes. It had me, as usual, in stitches. Like you, it's been many years since I read the book, but even as the schoolboy I was, I realised that his heroes always come over as a bit of a twat. The Black Corridor cast, also excellent. Moorcock's dip into more conventional sci-fi deserves making into a film. I'm sure it wouldn't need much altering to reflect the dystopian times we find ourselves living in. Finally, can I have the temerity to suggest a book for a future review? The Gas, by Charles Platt, published by Savoy Books. An uncontrollable nightmare of perversion, violence and insanity. That should give Phil something to get her teeth into. Christmas greetings to you both, from... Sebastian Weetabix. And please give David, my daily persona, a shout-out too for his 61st birthday on Christmas Eve. Keep the faith, my podcastian friends. So, David, truly, this show marks a true conjunction of the spheres. So happy birthday, David, Mike, and Phil. Happy 50th episode to us. Happy Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, or just the holidays if you're only in it for the pot and lemon and snowballs. Let joy be unconfined and everyone raise a pint of Malibu and Coke to the stars, and each other, as we get our heads into an appropriately festive tome to ring in the season. Yes, it's time for The Devils of D-Day. Back in the 80s, Graham Masterton's The Devils of D-Day may have just been one among many genre paperbacks that came to me via Pops, hundreds in fact, but it was certainly one of the most striking. The cover, by the incredible and incredibly prolific Les Edwards, is one of my favourites of all time a demon wreathed in flames looming over a shaman tank, thus combining two of my key obsessions during my teens, horror and World War II, 
How could it possibly go wrong? That particular genre mashup was fairly underserved by my reading, but by that point I'd already become obsessed with The Keep, Michael Mann's three-way combo of horror, war, and moody electronica, and I'd tracked down the source novel by Paul F. Wilson. I was a bit disappointed with the book, as the weirdness with the film turned out to be Michael Mann's interpretation, and Wilson's more conventional approach and villain didn't work for me as well. But I have reread it over the years, and I do enjoy it on its own merits, but there wasn't a whole lot more of that kind of stuff about. Of course, James Herbert's The Spear had Nazis in it, and Zombie Himmler, but it wasn't set during the war. And it turns out The Devils of D-Day wasn't either, but it was close enough for me, so I devoured it gladly. As it happens, a cropped version of that Les Edwards cover would pop up again a couple of times over the years, first on the vinyl single cover of Metallica's Jump in the Fire, and later on a metal compilation, which I do have upstairs somewhere, I think it was German, but I forget what it's called. An alternative painting of that demon, Sans Tank, would be used on later editions and feature on the cover of European editions of Warlock magazine and the cover of the Uriah Heep album, Abominog. Over the years, I read a few more Graham Masterton books, and they were generally USA set, so it was with great surprise that I eventually discovered he's actually Scottish. I only realised a few years ago when he was due to attend a con that I was going to, and with great excitement, I'd pulled my trusty old Sphere copy off the shelf, the very same that had sat in Pop's hands, so I could meet him and ask for a signature, but sadly he couldn't attend due to ill health, and then the pandemic happened. McGrain was a big seller from the 70s onwards, and I distinctly remember seeing the film of his novel Manitou on Deadly Ernest's horror double bill on Hull's Rediffusion Cable movie channel in the 80s, so he's always been in my subconscious, even if I haven't gone on to read a whole lot of his other books. And until I looked him up two or three years ago, I didn't know too much about him either. So I've gone to the shelf and pulled down one of the ridiculously massive tomes to see if one can fill in some of those blanks. In this case, the 1986 edition of the Penguin Encyclopedia of Horror and the Supernatural. And after waxing lyrical about a number of authors in the modern writers section, it says, These are but a few writers who obtained a level of notoriety in the late 70s and early 80s. Others include uh, blah 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 blah. Here we are, Graham Masterton, with a number of novels including The Djinn, 1977, The Wells of Hell, 1979, and The Pariah, 1983 that rode the coattails of the success of a mediocre film of his early novel, The Manitou, 1976. Not a whole lot of help there, then. So, sadly, I have to resort to Tinterwebs. So, it turns out he was born 16th of January, 1946, in Edinburgh, and his early work included being the editor of Mayfair and the British edition of Penthouse. In the early 80s, his novels won a special Edgar Award by the Mystery Writers of America, and a silver medal from the West Coast Review of Books. He's the only non-French winner of the Prix Julia Verlanger. He wrote sex instruction books, including How to Drive Your Man Wild in Bed, and Wild Sex for New Lovers. He established the Graham Masterton Written in Prison Award for the inmates of all of Poland's penal institutions to enter a short story contest, which has now become an annual event supported by the Polish Prison Service, the Rocklaw Agglomeration for Culture and Sport, two Polish publishing houses, and the Rocklaw Library. He inspired the creation of the annual pre Graham Masterton Award for the Best French Horror Novel and Short Story of the Year. First prize is a sculpture of a demon. In 2019, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Horror Writers Association. And finally, for this list, and crucially perhaps the strangest detail, in 2021 he was honoured by the city of Rocklaw in Poland by having a bronze dwarf representing him with a copy of his horror novel, The Manitou, placed on the pavement outside the Art Hotel in Kielbasnica Street, one of nearly 600 dwarfs 
which are a major tourist attraction. And apologies to any Polish listeners for my butchery of their place names. But another British horror author that got his start in good old honest-to-goodness UK smut. And furthermore, a British author responsible for over 100 novels who seems to get more love from the creative and publishing establishments in Europe than he does in the UK. That sounds quite familiar. And he also wrote two saucy confessions of novel tie-ins. Now, for younger or non-British listeners, look up the Confessions of films series from the 70s. And on top of that, close to 30 sex instruction books. That's a busy career. But no smut for us today, unless he crowbars some in, of course. So, sit back, charge your glasses, pull a cracker or something, get a big old slice of cake, as we head into the festive realms of horror, demons and death with The Devils of D-Day. Okay, we're back in Derry and Tom's for the special birthday episode, but we've got a bit of a confession to make. It's normally traditional that we have recorded the birthday episode on Phil and Michael Mocock's actual birthday, but Phil, what happened yesterday? We kind of stayed in the pub instead. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we we are big fans of a place in Markham, and we popped in there for a couple of liveners, and the idea was that we would have a couple. We went out for a lovely lunch. We were going to have a couple, then go back, put our feed up, do a little bit more reading, then record and go out for dinner. Things never quite worked out that way, did they? No. What kind of added to it is the landlord telling us to not be late the night before. That is true, yeah. <laughs> Andy, who runs Embargo in Markham, I think he, um, he's, he's now started to recognise us when we turn up back there <laughs> because Markham is our spiritual home. But anyway, we uh, we put a few quid behind his bar and we had a few and we ended up having a very, very nice day and we went out for a nice meal last night. But what we decided to do, bilaterally, I think it's fair to say, it is. is that we would extend your birthday for tw- by 24 hours and continue it today. So technically, we can say that we're still recording on your birthday. So this is the birthday episode. Welcome, Phil, back to Derry and Tom's. Thank you. It's nice to be back again. Yeah. We've we've not kicked off today with any booze as yet, because we've just been on a, a three-day booze-a-thon in Markham. We decided that we're not hardcore enough to have a bottle of Chateau Nerf de Pap and some, I don't know, psychoactive turnips to kick us off on, on our last day before we go back to work. But we have got a little tipple just to accompany us on our our birthday special. What have we got? You picked up a bottle of Spice Blood Orange and Cranberry Bucks Fizz. Yeah, very festive. A delicious twist on a Christmas classic. Yeah, okay. So while you're opening that, I'm just going to explain why we're here doing what we're doing. Because, of course... We're doing Graham Masterton's The Devils of D-Day. And for anybody listening who's um, uh, not a, a traditional listener, Ooh. we decided to put to the patrons four potential ghost stories for Christmas. So we decided to, to rekindle an old British tradition called Ghost Stories for Christmas. When I was a kid, you always got ghost stories and things like that around Christmas. Things like, uh, there's a really good BFI DVD, actually, of a lot of these things like The Stalls of Barchester or Whistle and I'll Come. But anyway, we decided to do that. And the patrons, out of a slate of William Hope Hodgson's The Ghost Pirates, Guy N. Smith's Crabs on the Rampage, which is the third in the Cliff Davenport trilogy, and we've covered the first two already, 
and Slugs by Sean Hudson, which we put on there for a laugh. We decided, we, well, the patrons decided on The Devils of D-Day by Graham Masterton. And of course, the intro explains a few things about Graham Masterton, which is cool. We know now that, um, just like Guy and Smith, he worked in Grot Mags, <laughs> which is uh, kind of a, a strangely satisfying and warming thing to know that all of our favourite, oh, I say favourite, we don't know if he's going to be one of our favourites, but another horror author who works in pulp fiction and genre fiction who got his start in Grot Mags. But anyway... Cheers. Cheers. Happy extended birthday. Thank you. Oh, that's really nice. It's just like orange and cinnamon pop. It just is, the orange just, you have to remember it's only 4%. Yeah, it, it is only 4%. So we're, we're just going to gradually ease ourselves into uh, this podcast with a couple of tipples and that's the first of them. But we do have some backups, don't we? Oh, and we'll yeah. explain those when we actually get to them. So, the devils of D-Day, anyway. The other thing we probably have to admit to is due to commitments over the weekend, like nice dinners and boozing <laughs> and meeting Ian and Angie for a day on the sauce, we only got through the first three chapters. We did. But the first three chapters are half to two, th- I would say three-fifths of the book. Well, literally three-fifths of the book, because it's a five-chapter <laughs> book. <laughs> well, it's... I have a thing about numbers. It's mm. 180 pages, and the first three chapters is 106 pages. Yeah. So let's say, uh, for the sake of argument, three-fifths three of the book. book. Yeah. We'll pick up the rest next week or over Crimble, but I think we've got enough to talk about this episode. Yes. First things first, have you read any Graham Masterton before? I have never read any. So I was very interested in coming into this. Mm. I only really know Graham Masterton originally because... In the 80s, on Deadly Ernest's Horror Double Bill on a Friday night on Hull's cable TV channel, which I've explained to you before, Hull had a service called Ready Fusion, and was, I think, there were two places in the country that had the Ready Fusion service. So Hull had a cable TV network in the 1980s, and certain houses in Hull had a little white box on a window ledge where the aerial came in from outside, or a cable came in from outside, and it had a dial that went from, I think, A to L. And it was just a little white plastic box with a dial, and you clicked the dial, mm. and you plugged the aerial socket from your TV into this box, and you changed channel with a box on the windowsill. Wow. And it had a music channel called Music Box, it had a movie channel, it had a sports channel, and every Friday night you got Deadly Ernest's Double Bill. And Deadly Ernest, I later found out, when my auntie married an Australian, was actually from Australian TV. Deadly Ernest Horrible Bill. So they borrowed, the they must have borrowed or purchased these Deadly right. Ernest shows from an Australian TV channel. And I can remember seeing Zoltan Hound of Dracula, Night of the Lepus, all kinds of cheesy horror movies. But one night, Manitou was on. And Manitou was based on a 70s Graham Masterton novel. And I don't remember a great deal about it other than some probably dubious, if you reread it, stuff about Native American myth and demons. And the most striking thing about it was a woman gives birth to a full-grown man in a hospital corridor. Yeah, that's, that's the main thing I remember. And some, and some, you know, probably quite grotty practical effects. I'd be very interested to see it again. But Manitou isn't a film that you ever really tend to see popping up anywhere. I've not heard of it. Hmm, I should really look up and see if you can get it on DVD or something. But anyway, 
So that's how I found out about Graham Masterton, was from seeing Manitou. And then later, of course, this book fell into my hands, courtesy of Pops. But what edition are you reading from? So I'm reading from a, a Sphere edition. This was reprinted in 84 and 85, but it was first published in 79. Yep, and mine, the one care of Pops, is the 1979 first edition Sphere paperback. Ah. Um, we've got rather different covers. Can you ex- describe your cover? So it's a black background with a horned creature. How would you describe it? It's it. It's a little bit abstract, isn't it? Yeah, the eyes are different. So mm. you've got a very long, thin, pointy right eye, and the other one is like red. They're both they're both red, but they're very different. One has a pupil. One looks deformed. Yeah. As does the nose. Yeah. The tongue is long and pointy, like a reptilian, and the, even the horns look different. Now, we tried to figure out who the artist was, mm. didn't we? And we did a little bit of tinterweb research, and we couldn't find any indication of who this artist was. So if anybody's listening who's into pulp and um, genre fiction from the 70s and 80s, and you know who did the cover art of the 1985 Sphere edition of The Devil's Adida, do let us know. So I'm reading from the first edition, which is still the very one I got from Pops. So I've had this book probably for, I don't know, 35 years or more. Still in pretty good nick as well. And it's the classic Les Edwards cover of the demon rearing above the Sherman tank. And there's a, there's like a, a black ribbon across the bottom right that says, The fiends of battle return in the shattering shock novel of occult warfare. Is it shattering? Well, we'll find out. But read the back, Burb. Read the back to me. So, at the bridge of Levey in July 1944, 13 black tanks smashed through the German lines in an unstoppable, all-destroying fury ride, leaving hundreds of Hitler soldiers horribly dead. 35 years later, Dan McCook visited that area of Normandy on an investigation of the battle site. There he found a rusting tank by the roadside that was perfectly sealed upon its turret a protective crucifix. Sceptical, he dared open it, releasing upon himself and the innocents who had helped him an unimaginable horror that led back to that black day in 1944 and reopened the ages-old physical battle between the world and evil incarnate. From today's master of the occult thriller, here is a riveting, mega-chill novel of (laughs) modern-day demonism. It's a mega-chill novel. (laughs) I think since that that reverse was written, mega-chill has taken on a slightly different meaning, hasn't it? Because I wouldn't particularly describe this novel as mega-chill. No. (laughs) It's mega-chill, dude. They're thinking of chilling, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, so it says the Devils of D-Day is about a new satanic kind of war. I've got to say, that does pretty much describe the first half of the book pretty accurately. Uh, it's not entirely accurate, though, because it says sceptical, he dared open it. By the time he opens it, he's not sceptical anymore. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Because why would somebody open a tank with something? Anyway, we'll get there. But I'm going to read. I'm going to read the opening. We're going to read the setup. So, chapter one. I could see them coming from almost a mile away. Two small muffled figures on bicycles, 
Their scarves wound tightly around their faces, peddling between the white winter trees. As they came nearer, I could hear them talking too, and make out the clouds of chilly vapour that clung around their mouths. It was Normandy in December, misty and grey as a photograph, and a sullen red sun was already sinking behind the forested hills. Apart from the two French labourers cycling slowly towards me, I was alone on the road, standing with my surveyor's tripod in the crisp frosted grass. My rented yellow Citroen 2CV parked at an ungainly angle on the nearby verge. It was so damn cold that I could hardly feel my hands or my nose, and I was almost afraid to stamp my feet in case my toes broke off. The men came nearer. They were old, with donkey jackets and berets, and one of them was carrying a battered army rucksack on his back with a long French loaf sticking out of it. Their bicycle tyres left white fairy tracks on the hoarfrost that covered the road. There wasn't much traffic along here in the rural depths of the Swiss Normand, except for occasional tractors, and even more occasional Citroen Maseratis zipping past at 90 miles an hour in blizzards of ice. A nice little opening there, setting the scene, and also explaining that this is actually in the freezing cold French countryside in December. Yeah. Is this almost a Christmas book? Well, it does feel it, doesn't it? It does feel that mm. it's in the heart of winter. Yeah, so this start. this is uh, 43 years ago today. Let's say. Depths of uh, freezing December in Normandy. He has a little chat to these two French fellas. And he says, One of the men took out a blue packet of gitan and offered me one. I didn't usually smoke French cigarettes, partly because of their high tar content and partly because they smelled like burning horse hair, but I didn't want to appear discourteous. Not after only two days in northern France. In any case, I was glad of the spot of warmth that a glowing cigarette tip gave out. We smoked for a while and smiled at each other dumbly, the way people do when they can't speak each other's language too well. Then the old man with the loaf said, They fought all across this valley, and down by the river too. The Orne, I remember it very clear. The other old man said, Tanks, you know. Here and there, the Americans coming across the road from Clacy, and the Germans retreating back up the Orne Valley. A very hard battle, just there, you see, by the Pont de But that day the Germans stood no chance. Those American tanks came across the bridge at Levee and cut them off. At night, from just here, you could see German tanks burning all the way up to the turn in the river. I blew out smoke and vapour. It was so gloomy now that I could hardly make out the heavy granite shoulders of the rocks at Ouy, where the Orne River widened and turned before sliding over the dam at Levee and foaming northwards in the spectral December evening. The only sound was the faint rush of water and the doleful tolling of the church bell from the distant village. And out here in the frost and the cold, we might just as well have been alone in the whole continent of Europe. The old man with the loaf said, It was fierce, that fighting. I never saw it so fierce. We caught three Germans, but it was no difficulty. They were happy to surrender. I remember one of them said, Today I fought the devil. The other old man nodded, Der Teufel. That's what he said. I was there. This one and me were cousins. I smiled at them both. I didn't really know what to say. Well, said the one with the loaf, we must get back for nourishment. Thanks for stopping, I told him. It gets pretty lonely standing out here on your own. You're interested in the war? asked the other old man. I shrugged. Not specifically. I'm a cartographer, a map maker. There are many stories about the war. Some of them are just pipe dreams. But round here, there are many stories. Just down there, about a kilometre from the Pont d'Ouy, there's an old American tank in the hedge. People don't go near it at night. They say you can hear the dead crew talking to each other inside it on dark nights. That's pretty spooky, I said. The old man pulled up his scarf, so that only his old wrinkled eyes peered out. 
He looked like a strange Arab soothsayer, or a man with terrible wounds. He tugged on his knitting gloves and said in a muffled voice, These are only stories. All battlefields have ghosts, I suppose. Anyway, Le Patage Satan. Nice setup. Nice, spooky setup. It really is. It tells you exactly where you are. It talks about the war and brings in the tank, but it also gives our protagonist's role and why he's there. Yeah, and we've we spent a lot of time in Northern France years ago, didn't we? For, I think for four or five years we went to either Normandy or Brittany or the Pas de Calais on holiday, probably two or three times a year. And the idea that you're going down the country lane and you just come across a World War II vehicle just on the side of the road or in a farmer's field, it's just so common, isn't yeah. it? They're all over the place. So this this is really, really plausible. I mean, obviously, some other things maybe not not so plausible, <laughs> but it's it's um, it's really easy to envisage. And you know, Baston does quite a good good job of of conjuring up this and this picture of the French countryside. There are a couple of bits where I think at one point he swerves to avoid a French onion seller on on his bicycle <laughs> a little bit later on, which is this yeah. idea that you know you're you're going around the. The roads in France and some guy in a stripy shirt and a beret with onions around his neck on a bicycle. <laughs> you know, they run into him. So, you know, perhaps a little bit, um, uh, a little bit, little bit dodge. But on the whole, I think this is a really, really nice setup. And it actually makes me want to go back to France again. But you're right. We'd go down roads or go the wrong way and you'd, then you'd get really excited because you'd see a tank or something. Yeah. Well, so we, we, it's only because we took a wrong turn once. We found Pegasus Bridge, mm. isn't it? You yeah. were very happy. That I was very day. happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is you know pre. Um, I don't think we had a sat nav at that point. I think we were no. going off paper maps, weren't we? Yeah. I think we the first time we ever had that sat nav was when we decided to. It gave us the courage to drive through Paris, and we never ever did it again. Oh god, that was awful. <laughs> that but was really. You awful. were driving, and even you were getting stressed, <gasps> weren't you? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, we found, dear listeners, that if we went to France. If I drove, we took our lives into our own hands because even though in the UK I don't think I'm a bad driver, I am just one of those people who, if I drive in Europe with the flip side to the other side of the road, I can cope with it for about 10 minutes, then my attention wanders and I go into autopilot mode and I nearly... I think it was something like a a Citroen coming down the opposite side of the road that nearly wiped us out because I'd, I'd pulled out from looking the wrong way. You forgot. Yeah, but anyway, even... Driving through Paris even did you in, didn't it? It was it was particularly stressful. But anyway, so it's a good setup. Dan McCook, this American, is a cartographer we find who's drawing maps for a book on the battles in Normandy in World War Two. Mm-hmm. But he decides to go off and look for this tank. So he's having a drive around the countryside. It's yeah. piqued his interest, hasn't it? It has piqued his interest, yeah. And he's um, he's he's doing maps for a book by Roger Kelman, and he's drawing all these maps for the days after D Day. He heads off to look for this tank. I passed silent, dilapidated farms with sagging barns and closed windows. I passed grey fields in which cows stood like grubby brown and white jigsaws, frozen saliva hanging from their hairy lips. I passed shuttered houses and slanting fields that went down to the dark winter river. The only sign of life that I saw was a tractor, its wheels so caked with ochre clay that they were twice their normal size, standing by the side of the road with its motor running. There was nobody in it. Eventually, the winding road took me down between rough stone walls, under a tangled arcade of leafless trees, and over the bridge, at Ouy. I kept a lookout for the tank the old cousins had talked about, but the first time I missed it altogether, and I spent five minutes wrestling the stupid car back around the way it had come, stalling twice, and almost getting jammed in a farm gateway. In the greasy farmyard, I saw a stable door open, 
and an old woman with a grey face and a white lace cap stared out at me with suspicion. But then the door closed again, and I banged the two CV into something resembling a second gear, and roared back down the road. You could have missed the tank in broad daylight, let alone at dusk in the middle of a freezing Norman winter. Just as I came around the curve of the road, I saw it, and I managed to pull up a few yards away, with a Citroen suspension complaining and groaning. I stepped out of the car into a cold pile of cow dung, but at least when it's chilled like that it doesn't smell. I scraped my shoe on a rock by the side of the road and then walked back to look at the tank. It was dark and bulky, but surprisingly small. I guess we're so used to enormous army tanks these days that we forget how tiny the tanks of World War II actually were. Its surface was black and scaly with rust, and it was so interwoven with a hedge that it looked like something out of Sleeping Beauty, with thorns and brambles twisted around its turret, laced in and out of its tracks, and wound around its stumpy cannon. I didn't know what type of tank it was, but I guessed it was maybe a Sherman or something like that. It was obviously American. There was a faded and rusted white star on its side, and a painting of some kind that time and the weather had just about obliterated. I kicked the tank, and it responded with a dull, empty, booming sound. He is very good at his descriptions. You can feel, and I suppose, you know, like you said, we've been to France many times, but I got very easily drawn into it. I could feel it, you know, the yeah. small winding roads and everything else. It just, it just, his descriptions were really good. Well, I dug it, because if someone, had, if two old cousins had told us there was a tank just down the lane, would have been all over it like a shot, wouldn't we? I'm still excited about, the, remember when we went to, um, what was the name of the cafe near Pegasus Bridge? And there was a Cromwell tank across the road. And I couldn't wait to go across and examine it and have a look around it. Just, you know, that kind of nerdy <laughs> stuff that I loved in the 80s. It's, uh, it's great. Yeah. Anyway, he's interrupted by a woman approaching, carrying an aluminium milk pail. And this, as we will find, is Madeline. And we also quickly learn that Dan is a horny dog, typical of these types of books, because we get his little description. And he says, She stopped walking and stared at me hard. She was quite pretty for a Norman peasant. Yeah. She had that straight nose you see on 11th, 11th century women in the Bayeux tapestry and opalescent green eyes. Underneath her mud-spattered jerkin and her sensible skirt and her rubber boots, she had quite a noticeable figure too. Yeah, uh, but how you started... Fancy her already. I know, but quite pretty for a Norman peasant. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry, but that was like, oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After your fabulous description of where we are. Yeah. Not not bad for a farmer's daughter. And there's there's, yeah. there's a little bit a little bit further on. Whereas well, I think where uh, where he goes to do was like it's something along the lines of um, he was quite excited about maybe the, a, a tumble in the hair shed with a farmer's daughter. <laughs> he's he's got an idea of farmer's daughters types. Also about people standing as well. He goes on about her clothes a couple of times. Yeah, and... yeah, he does. Well, when he goes to dinner and he sees her in a cotton dress and a red red lipstick, he. he, he uh... He definitely gets a boner, doesn't he? <laughs> um, but the, he, he chats to her about the tank, and he introduces himself, and he uh, asks to take her for a drink, and he's already trying to hit on her. Even though he says he's not trying to hit on her, he was totally trying to hit on her. Yeah. And he says, can I come in and talk to you about the tank? She said, no, maybe tomorrow. So she gives him the brush off, and the old lady in the white lace cap that he saw earlier on, she's out again, and he asks who she is. And Madeline says, oh, that's Eloise. She lived at the farm all her life. She nursed my mother when she was sick. Now there's someone to speak to if you're interested in stories about the tank. She believes in every superstition. I coughed in the cold twilight. Could I speak to her now? Madeline said, not tonight, perhaps another day. She turned and started to walk across the farmyard, 
but I caught up with her and grabbed the handle of her milking pail. Listen, how about tomorrow? I could come around noon. Could you spare a few minutes then? I was determined not to let her get away without making some kind of firm commitment. <laughs> the tank and its ghosts were pretty interesting, but Madeline Passarella herself was even more so. You don't usually get much action when you're drawing up a military map of northern France, and a few glasses of wine and a tumble in the cowshed with a farmer's daughter, even in the deep midwinter, was a lot more appealing than silent and solitary meals in the brown garlic-smelling mausoleum that my hotel jocularly called its dining room. Madeline smiled. Very well, come and eat with us, but make it at 11.30. We lunch early in France. You've made my week. Thanks a lot. I reached forward to kiss her, but my, sl <laughs> but my foot slid on the churned-up mud of the farmyard and I almost lost my balance. <laughs> I saved most of my dignity by turning my slide into three rapid steps, but the kiss was lost to the freezing air, a puff of vapour that vanished in the dusk. Amused, Madeline said. Au revoir, Monsieur McCook. Until tomorrow. He's already tried to snog her. He's only known her for 30 seconds. Yeah. What a dog. <laughs> I'm glad he slipped. Yeah. <laughs> he, he gives up. He settles for that lunch invite. But he heads back to his Citroen and he has his first odd experience at the tank. Through the tumbling snow a few yards away from the derelict tank, I saw a small, bony figure, white in the darkness, not much taller than a child of five, and he seemed to be hopping or running. The sight of it was so sudden and strange that I was momentarily terrified. But then I ran forward through the snow and shouted, Hey, you! My shout echoed flatly back from the nearby rocks. I peered into the dark, but there was nobody there. Only the rusting bulk of the Sherman tank, woven into the brambles of the hedge. Only the wet road and the noise of the river. There was no sign of any figure. No sign of any child. I walked back across to my car and checked it for damage in case the figure had been a vandal or a thief. But the Citroen was unmarked. I climbed thoughtfully inside and sat there for a minute or two, drying my face and hair with my handkerchief, wondering what the hell was going on around here. So he's already had his spooky experience mm. at the Sherman. Something strange going on there. So anyway, he goes for lunch the following day. Goes quite well. He meets uh, Madeline's dad, yep. who seems a very nice... Jack Passerelle seems like yep. a top bloke, although basically all he does is smoke, smoke and... Drink Calvados. Every time he goes round, it's like, would you like Calvados? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would love a guess. I'd say, yes, I'd love Calvados, and then I'd drink it, because it's fucking horrible. And then I'd, I'd keep drinking it, because I so dearly want to like Calvados, but I've never, ever had nice Calvados. But may I interject at this point and say, when we go, you always end up bringing some back with you. Yeah. I think I've only got one bottle of Calvados in the cupboard. Maybe it's... two... I think it's probably been in there 14 years. I was going to say, unopened Calvados. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't persist at Calvados. I just, I, my first thought when once France was, if I actually buy Calvados from Normandy, will it be any good? And it wasn't. It was horrible. So, yeah, I moved on. So he has a, he has a good chat to Jack, Jack Passerelle, anyway. And eventually Madeline comes down for lunch, and there she is in her light cotton dress and red lipstick. And he says, she sat down. And I sat opposite, and he says, You shouldn't have dressed up specifically for me, but all the same, you look beautiful. <laughs> he really fancies himself, doesn't he? <sighs> Woman comes down looking pretty. Oh, you obviously dressed that way for me. Get over yourself. Yeah, get over yourself. <laughs> over, over, over a large terrine of... Is terrine the right word? Terrine? Is it going terrines? Is that right? Yeah, isn't it? Is it terrines? Yeah. Over a large terrine of homemade onion soup, of course, because they're in France, Eloise spills the beans on the tank. And it turns out 
Eloise has been around quite a while, and she's a bit of a bit of a local mystic lady. Well, she seems to have some uh, some helpful things to help ward off. Yeah. Oh, one th- one thing we should mention is uh, there's a model of the cathedral at Rouen on a mantelpiece, and he notices there's a curled bit of hair on the steeple of the cathedral. Oh. Well, that'll come in handy later on. <laughs> so Eloise, anyway, says nobody knows much about the tanks. And Sorry, Madeline says nobody knows much about the tanks. Madeline wants to shut her down, say we don't have to talk about this, but Eloise says it doesn't matter. This young man wants to know about the tank. Then why shouldn't he? And he says, and Dan says, how were they different? It looks like a regular tank to me. Well, explained Eloise, they were painted black all over, although you cannot see that now because the rust and the weather have taken away the paint. There were 13 of them. I know because I counted them as they came along the road from Levee. 13, on the 13th day of July. But what was most strange, they never opened the turrets. Most American tanks came with their tops open, and the soldiers would throw us candy and cigarettes and nylon stockings. But these tanks came, and we never saw who drove them. They were always closed. Madeline had finished her soup and was sitting upright in a chair. She looked very pale, and it was clear that all this talk about the strange tanks disconcerted her. I said, Did you talk to any Americans about them? Did they ever tell you what they were? Jack, with his mouth full of garlic bread, said, They didn't know, or they wouldn't speak. They just said, Special Division. And that was all. Only one was left behind, put in Eloise. That was the tank which is still there down the road. It broke a track and stopped. But the Americans did nothing to take it away. Instead, they came along next day and welded down the turret. Yes, they welded it. And then an English priest came and said words over it, and it was left to rot. You mean the crew was left inside? Jack tore off some more bread. Who can say? They wouldn't let anyone near. I've talked many times to the police and to the mayor, and all they say is that the tank is not to be moved. And there it stays. Madeline said, and ever since it's been there, the village has been dead and depressed. Because of the voices, I said. Madeline shrugged. There have been voices. At least that's what some people say. But more than anything else, it's the tank itself. It's a terrible reminder of something that most of us now would prefer to forget. Eloise said, those tanks could not be stopped. They set fire to German tanks all along the river, and then they set fire to the Germans themselves who tried to escape from them. You could hear the screams all night of men burning. In the morning the tanks were gone, who knows where or how. But they came through in one day, and one night, and nothing on earth could have held them back. I know they saved us, monsieur, but I still shudder when I think of them. Who's heard these voices? Do they know what they say? Eloise said. Not many people walk along that road at night anymore. But Madame Verrier said she heard whispering and laughter one night in February. An old Henrique told of voices that boomed and shouted. I myself have carried milk and eggs past that tank, and the milk has soured and the eggs have gone rotten. Gaston from the next farm had a terrier which sniffed around the tank, and the dog developed tremors and shakes. Its hair fell out, and after three days it died. Everybody has one story about the evil that befalls you if you go too near the tank. And so these days, nobody does. I said, isn't it just superstition? I mean, there's no real evidence. You should ask Father Anton, said Eloise. If you're really foolhardy enough to want to know more, Father Anton will probably tell you. The English priest who said words over the tank stayed at his house for a month, and I know they spoke of the tank often. Father Anton was never happy that it was left by the road, 
but there was nothing he could do, short of carrying it away on his own back. I have to say, when he says to Eloise, isn't it just superstition? She's just told him of a, a local farmer whose dog died mm. after getting tremor shakes, hair fell out and died three days later. Yeah, that does sound a bit old wives' tale, though, doesn't it? A little bit. It sounds like one of his neighbours. The, the, the things are starting to build now. He's seen mm. something weird himself and got a bit freaked out. He's heard all these stories of the locals. He's heard Eloise talking about milk going sour and eggs going bad and a dog dying. We've not found out yet about Madeline's mother, but we'll find out that a little bit later. But his interest further peaked. He goes um, to see Father Anton. But interestingly, just before he does go to see him, yeah. is the fact that He's had his own sighting, and he's heard all these stories, so he's gathering a lot of information and building a picture. He didn't share what he saw. No. Oh, no, no. Kept that to himself. Yeah. yeah. He's still sceptical at yeah. the moment, but things are just starting to chip away a little bit of that. But you'd think he, that might have directed some of his questioning? Mm. Yeah, well, I suppose it's early days. Yeah. He's gone for a bowl of onion soup and some garlic bread. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> And so he goes to see Father Anton. Father Anton's like 90-odd years old. He's a very old man, but he remembers the English priest that tended the tank whilst it was welded shut. So they had this big, big operation with the priest doing whatever he did, and the tank was welded shut, a crucifix was bolted to its top of its turret. But Anton, Father Anton, says he's also heard the voices that he describes as infernal at the tank. So we've got another... Quite plausible witness. So Dan's starting to, you know, starting to put together a picture now. And of course, because he can't stay away from Madeline, he instantly goes back to the passerelle farm. He's basically like an elastic band. He's on an <laughs> elastic band back to the passerelle farm to see Madeline. But this time, at least, he doesn't creep on her. And she explains how her mother died and how they attribute it to the tank. So how did her mother die? She tried to perform some kind of ritual because she was getting so... Like unhappy and distressed about the impact that the aura that the tank was giving off and, and kind of how... It was affecting people's moods yeah, and behaviour. how desperately depressing and, and, and ill the area was. And all it did was hasten her own death. And she died within a year of ta- carrying out this ceremony. Mm. Mm. So, how does Dan decide to deal with all of this business? He decides that he needs to check this out for himself and he convinces Madeline to go with him. Again. What a pair of clowns. <laughs> Off he goes to check this tank out for himself. They do it when it's getting dark. They don't do it, you know, the following morning. He's he's insistent that he's got to go and have a look. And here we go. So it took us two or three minutes to reach the hedge where the tank lay entangled. As soon as I saw the shape of it, I pulled the Citroen over onto the opposite verge and killed the motor. I lifted my battery-operated tape recorder out of the back seat and opened the back door. Madeline said, I'll wait here, just for the moment anyway. Call me if you need me. Down here by the river, under the brow of the cliffs, the pallid moonlight barely reached. I crossed the road and stepped right up to the tank, touching its cold, corroded mudguard. It seemed so dead and desolate and rusted that now I saw it again for real, it was hard to believe that there was anything supernatural about it. It was nothing more than the abandoned junk of war. I walked round the tank as far as I could, but its right side was completely tangled in brambles, and it would have taken a sharp machete and three native bearers to go around and take a look at that. I satisfied myself with the left side and the back. I was interested to see that even the air vents and the engine had been welded up tight, and so had the grill over the driver's porthole. 
Slinging my tape recorder over my shoulder, I heaved myself up onto the tank's mudguard. I made a lot of noise doing it, but I didn't suppose that thirty-year-old ghosts really objected that much to being disturbed in the night. Carefully, I walked across the blackened hull, and my footsteps sounded booming and metallic. I reached the turret and hammered on it with my fist. It seemed very empty in there, and I hoped it was. As Jack Passarell had said, the tank's hatch was welded shut. It was a hasty-looking weld, but whoever had done it had known his job. As I strained forward to look at it more closely, however, I saw that the hatch was sealed by other means as well, means that, in their own way, were just as powerful. Riveted over the top of the tank was a crucifix. It looked as if it had been taken from the altar of a church and crudely fastened to the turret in such a way that nobody could ever remove it. Looking even nearer, I saw that there was some kind of holy adjuration too, engraved in the rough metal. Most of the words were corroded beyond legibility, but I could distinctly make out the phrase, Thou art commanded to go out. Up there on the hull of that silent ruined tank, in the dead of winter in Normandy, I felt frightened of the unknown for the first time in my life. I mean really frightened. Even though I didn't want it to, my scalp kept chilling and prickling, and I found I was licking my lips again and again like a man in an icy desert. I could see the Citroen across the road, but the moon was reflecting from the flat windscreen, so I couldn't make out Madeline at all. For all I knew, she might have vanished. For all I knew... The rest of the world might have vanished. I coughed in the bitter cold. I walked along to the front of the tank, pushing aside wild brambles and leafless creeper. There wasn't much to see there, so I walked back to the turret to see if I could distinguish more of the words. It was then, as my fingers touched the top of the turret, that I heard someone laughing. I stayed stock still, holding my breath. The laughter stopped. I lifted my head and tried to work out where the sound might have come from. It had been a short, ironic laugh but with a particularly metallic quality, as if someone had been laughing over a microphone. I said, who's there? But there was silence. The night was so quiet that I could still hear that distant dog barking. I laid my tape recorder on top of the turret and clicked it on. For several minutes, there was nothing but the hiss of the tape coursing past the recording head and that damn dog. But then I heard a whispering sound, as if someone was talking to himself under his breath. It was close, and yet it seemed far away at the same time. It was coming from the turret. Shaking and sweating, I knelt down beside the turret and tapped on it twice. I sounded as choked up as a grade school kid after his first round martini. I said, Who's there? Is there anybody inside there? There was a pause, then I heard a whispery voice say, You can help me, you know. It was a strange voice, which seemed to come from everywhere at once. It seemed to have a smile in it as well, the kind of voice that someone has when they're secretly grinning. It could have been a man or a woman, or even a child, but I wasn't sure. I said, Are you in there? Are you inside the tank? The voice whispered, You sound like a good man, a good man and true. Almost screaming, I said, What are you doing in there? How did you get in? The voice didn't answer my question. It simply said, You can help me, you know. You can open this prison. You can take me to join my brethren. You sound like a good man, and true. Listen, I shouted, if you're really inside there, tap on the turret. Let me hear that you're in there. The voice laughed. I can do better than that, believe me. I can do far better than that. The voice laughed softly. Do you feel sick? It asked me. Do you feel as if you're seized with cramps and pains? I frowned. I did, as a matter of fact, feel nauseous. 
There was something in my stomach that was turning over and over. Something foul and indigestible. I thought for a minute it was something I ate for lunch, but then I was seized by a stomach spasm that made me realise I was going to be violently ill. It all happened in an instant. The next thing I knew my gut was racked by the most terrible heaving, and my mouth had to stretch open wide as a torrent of revolting slush gushed out of me and splattered the hull of the tank. The vomiting went on and on until I was clutching my stomach and weeping from the sheer exhaustion of it. Only then did I look at what had made me puke. Out of my stomach, out of my actual mouth, had poured thousands of pale twitching maggots in a tide of bile. They squirmed and writhed all over the top of the tank, pink and half-transparent, and all I could do was clamber desperately off that hideous ruined Sherman and drop to the frozen grass, panting with pain and revulsion, and scared out of my mind. Behind me the voice whispered, You can help me, you know. You sound like a good man. And true. And at that point, you turn tail and you go back to England. Absolutely. You run like <laughs> fuck at that point, don't you? Yeah. So that's really cool. And I also really, really love the description of vomit as revolting slush. <laughs> Do you know what? When he, when you read how he just, it was just constant and he yeah. got to the point where he was absolutely... He didn't know how he continued to vomit. I just thought of the witches of Eastwick yeah. when she vomits up the cherry pips <laughs> and it's just mountains and mountains of cherries. Yeah. And it just reminded me of that, except yeah. for with maggots. Yeah. So, again, he's very good at description. This is when the book's at the best, at setting all this stuff up. Because, no spoilers, but spoilers. It dips a bit in Chapter 3. We haven't got to Chapter 3 yet. Mm. But we now know... And Dan now knows, surely, that something is afoot here. And it says on the back of the book, sceptical, he dared open it. That's misleading because he is no longer sceptical. Because in Chapter 2, after he's recovered from his maggot vomiting episode, Dan goes back to see Father Anton, and he's got it all on tape. Got it all on tape, because he put his tape recorder on the hull of the tank. You see, I, I tried to look at how sceptic he, he is, especially after Madeline told her what happened to her mum after she tried to do an exorcism. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you might not believe the old wife's tale of the dog yeah. if it was an old wife's tale, but Madeline told you what happened with her mum. Yeah. And <laughs> now you just had a conversation with a, a voice inside a tank that made you puke up maggots. And it's been sailed in since 1944. Yeah. So at this point, he's buying into this now. Yes. And even more so, he goes to see Father Anton, he plays Father Anton the tape, and he gets the shock of his life, because when he's playing the Father Anton the tape, it says, the tape fizzed and whispered, and then that chilling, whispery voice said, you can help me, you know. Father Anton stiffened and stared across me in, in undisguised shock. You sound like a good man, a good man and true. You can open this prison. You can take me to join my brethren. You sound like a good man and true. So, so far so good. He's playing yep. tape to Father Anton. Father Anton was about to say something, but I put my finger against my lips, warning him that there was more. The voice went on. You can help me, you know. You and that priest. Look at him. Doesn't that priest have something to hide? Doesn't that priest have some secret lust concealed under that holy cassock? I stared at the tape recorder in amazement. 
He didn't say that. There was no way I ever said that. Father Anton was white. He asked in a trembling tone, What does this mean? What is it saying? Father, Father, whispered the tape recorder. Surely you recall that warm summer of 1928. So long ago, Father, but so vivid. That day you took young Matilda on the river. In your boats. Surely you remember that. Father Anton freaks out. <laughs> Dan's right, freaked so. out because the demon is now talking to Father Anton through the medium of the tape recorder. Yep. And um, that's the, the tape stuff is really, really great. And I'm sure I've seen that in, in horror movies. That's become something of a trope in horror movies, haven't it? Where, where something's recorded with some demonic presence and then the demonic presence continues to have a continued conversation through that media. Yes. We've seen it in something. It's been used. And it's been used um, on stuff like, I think... It's, it's become a trope in certain types of horror film that use certain kinds of medium, uh, media. But it's great. It works really, really well. Now that Father Anton is completely freaked out, he's given us some more exposition as well, isn't he? And we get some, we get some really good stuff. Oh, but this is after uh, the demon through the tape recorder has still tried to recruit Father Anton to its plan to try and get him out mm. of the tank. And it says... Father Anton can take away the cross that binds me down and cast away the spell. You can do that, can't you, Father Anton? You'd do anything for an old friend, and I'm an old friend of yours. You can take me to join my brethren across the waters, can't you? Beelzebub, Lucifer, Madelon, Salimo, Saroy, Theo, Amaclo, Sagrael, Praradun. And then the priest says, stop it! Yeah, so we're getting more and more little elements of detail. Oh, yeah, because he said if he hadn't stopped him, he was going to finish... Oh. He was going to finish inciting yes. the names. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was trying to trick them. And Father Anton keeps giving little additional little pieces of exposition. And it's really cool because there are all sorts of little details in here that suggest other things that have happened in this specific version of our world. There's a really good reference at one point to Morlock and when uh, the, the lock of... Oh, we'll get to the lock of hair. Yeah. Because the lock of hair is explained a little bit later. But at this point, Father Anton, it says Father Anton went across the tall window and looked down at his courtyard. Although it was mid-morning, it was as dark as late afternoon and a few flakes of snow were tumbling idly across the village. The church clock struck eleven. What people forget, he said, was that the war was mystic and magical in the extreme. Hitler set great store by magic and made a particular point of confiscating the Spear of Longinus, the very spear that pierced Christ's side on the cross, from the Hofberg Museum in Vienna, because he believed that whoever possessed it could control the destiny of the world. On the side of the Allies, many experiments were made in sending messages by telepathy, and in levitation there was a Dutch priest who claimed he could invoke the wrath of the Ten Divine Sephiroth to bring down German planes with bolts of fire. There's loads of really, really cool stuff in here. But that thing about the Spear of Longinus and Hitler, that's basically the plot of the Spear by James Herbert. Oh. Mm, which was written a few years after this. So who knows if James Herbert read this and thought, oh, there's, there's a, a nice <laughs> seed, a nice plot seed for a book. But, yeah. But when he was, obviously when he was reading out all of the demons, and he said it was a conjuration. Yeah. And he said... Uh, they were the words that can summon Beelzebub, yeah. Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Three more words, and the sea, and that demon could have been with us. Yeah. So, scary shit. Yeah. Anyway, he leaves Father Anton after this um, lengthy conversation. He's, he's got to be more convinced now. And 
He goes to meet Madeline for a glass of wine at lunch in the bar touristique. And he says, a grossly fat woman in a floral housecoat served behind the bar and occasionally forehead out to slap at the red formica topped tables with a wet rag as if they were disobedient dogs who kept playing up. The house wine was robust enough to clean your family silver with, but I'd managed to find a stale pack of luckies in the local tobacconists, so my palate wasn't complaining quite so vigorously as it had this morning. Madeline came in through the plastic strip curtain looking very pale and waif-like, and when she saw me she came across the bar and put her arms tight around my neck. Oh, he's, he's starting to score you. <laughs> Dan, you're all right. Of course I'm all right. I've got to be talking to Father Anton. I took a speckled tweed coat and hung it up next to a sign that warned De France de Cracheur. No idea what that means. Sorry, French people, for butchering this with bad pronunciation. She was wearing a plain turquoise blue dress that was probably very fashionable in Pondoui. But in Paris, it was about eight years out of style. Yeah, once again, another go at Madeleine's clothing. Still, she looked good. And it was a lift to meet someone who really cared about my welfare. Ten-ton Tessie, behind the bar, brought us our wine and we clinked glasses like one-time lovers meeting in a seedy bar at the back of Grand Central Station. Ten-ton Tessie. Dan is going down in my estimation (laughs) when other people are brought into this. Yeah, yeah, what a dick. But he he has lunch. And he he pops to a post office, but before he goes to the post office, she tells him a little bit about some of the dreams she's had. And dreams that she's had ever since she was a little girl that, that she thinks were down to the tank. She says they were cruel dreams, nightmares, but they were exciting as well. Sometimes I dreamed of being forced to have sex with bristly beasts and strange creatures. But sometimes the dreams were different, and I imagined that I was being mutilated or killed. That was frightening, but it was exciting too. Pieces were being sliced off me. And there was lots of blood. Mm. Which you obviously thinks coming from the tank. Yeah. The fact that it could kill a mum. Yeah. It, it obviously can get out. Yeah. After what it did with the tape recorder. Yeah. So he uh, he goes to the local post office so he can give Father Anton a call. And once again, there's a really nice little detail here, and and it really reminded me of think things that I've forgotten about the seventies and eighties, because it says. I looked across the polished floor of Pont Louis' post office, marked with muddy footprints where the local farmers had come in to draw their savings and to post their letters. There was a tattered poster on the wall beside me warning of the dangers of rabies. Do you remember that in the 70s and 80s? Do you remember TV adverts about rabies and, thing, and, yes. and little posters about yeah. warning about rabies? And there was a real idea that rabid dogs would be an actual thing that you might have to run away from. One of the, Another one of these yeah. multitude of things that made you... As a child, think that certain things would be an absolute herald of the end of the world. And I never knew anybody who would come across a raping dog. No, no. Did you? No, it was one of those public information things. You know, rabies was was a very real thing. And there was a um, Matthew Holness, the guy behind Garth Marenghi. He did a, a short film, and I think we watched it at the time. It was on a Sky series of short films. He did a short film called The Snipist. And it was done, it had this big, th- bit at the beginning that was kind of in the style of a public information film explaining that, um, or, or setting up a situation where it's in England where a rabid dog got in and rabies ran through the British animal population like wildfire. And the protagonist in this short film is a sniper in a bunker keeping watch for rabid animals. And it's a, it's a really, really cool short film. It's It's on... Not YouTube, it's on Vimeo. So if anybody's listening, check out The Snipist on Vimeo. 
And also, while you're at it, check out his uh, his other short film, A Gun for George, because it's amazing. But anyway, so they've cooked up a plan, haven't they? Well, they feel it's time to open and let this out. I've got to say, right, let's think about the process here. The tank's got a demon inside, and Dan's thinking has gone rapidly through. These ridiculous superstition, you know, but in one case extremely foxy peasants, are just idiots, to, okay, I wasn't convinced initially, but it spoke to me and made me puke maggots. Then it mocked Father Anton via tape recorder and tried to do a conjuration. So now I'm all in and totally convinced that there is a demon locked in this tank that was locked in there with a series of religious bindings welded in and there's a crucifix on top. And, uh, and whatever passage the Reverend Taylor yeah. said above it. Yeah, so I have a plan. The tank's welded shirt's got a bloody great crucifix bolted to the roof. Uh, we should open it. I've, I've got to say, this is a shit plan. It is a very shit plan. But he, he gets around it by saying that it, it, it could corrode at any time and get some unsuspecting passerby. Fair point. Is, could, is there any signs uh, of corrosion? Eventually, it could corrode and, and a hole could appear. But should he and Madeline just think, well, it might happen eventually, so let's make it happen now. Is that a... It's a shit plan. It is a really shit plan. It's a proper, proper shit plan. Yeah. Anyway, they're discussing this in the same room as Father Anton and um, Eloise. And rather than saying, you're a pair of fucking young idiots, wrap it up. Let's do perhaps a a couple more weeks' investigation on this. Let's go to the local library, find some more information. Let's maybe try and contact this priest. No, they do nothing whatsoever to discourage them (laughs) from this ridiculous plan. But what he says was, you'll have to pick me up on the way because I'm going to have to come. He feels some sense of responsibility. Father Anton says, well, yeah, I'm coming with you. Uh, But even then he's like, well, you know what? This is a shit plan, Dan. Rethink it. But Eloise comes up and she says, Eloise came up close to me and whispered, Monsieur, you must take this. Father Anton may not approve, so don't let him see it, but it will help you against the creatures from hell. Into my hand she pressed the same ring of hair that had been tied around the model cathedral in Jacques Passerelle's parlour. I held it up and said, What is it? I don't understand. Eloise glanced at Father Anton apprehensively, but the old priest was, wasn't looking our way. It is the hair of a first-born child who was sacrificed to Moloch centuries ago, when devils plagued the people of Rouen. It will show the monsters that you have already paid your respects to them. Ooh, that's a bit grim. That's awful. That's a bit grim. And you... how did she end up with this? Who knows? She's a strange old wise woman. But I don't think that becomes clear, does it? Yeah. But it's a, it's another another nice seed of kind of groovy, colourful background information about this world where, in this world, where the Allies bound demons into tanks, there have been numerous real demonic incursions there's even a passage where at one point um, Father Anton's talking about the stonemasons <coughs> who carved the gargoyles on Rouen Cathedral. He has an account of one of them who explains how he, him and his stonemason colleagues were brought the bodies of creatures that they would then fashion into... They would use their likeness to fashion gargoyles on Rouen Cathedral. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a really kind of like cool... 
broader idea that you get in this that actually this stuff's gone on all the time and this is a world filled with demons and darkness and monsters yeah it's it's it's, it's pretty cool it's some of the it's some of the better stuff in the book i've got to say but anyway it's still a shit plan <laughs> but then it wouldn't have been much of a book would it if he had went oh yeah there's demons in there i better go home yeah end of story yeah well that's a good point but um, I would have perhaps appreciated another way of the tank getting opened rather than the protagonist just being super rash. Yeah, because they talk about the tank being rusted, mm. they could have started a little hole. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, in fact, what we get is, with a, wild, with a wide steel chisel, I banged <laughs> all the way around the hatch of the turret, breaking the rough welding wherever I could, but mostly knocking dents in the rusted armour plating. Yeah. I was making my seventh circle of the hatch when the blade of the chisel went right through a deeply corroded part of the metal and made a hole the size of a dime. So, uh, Yeah, but do you reckon part of it is, because just before you read that, yeah. he takes a moment to kiss Madeleine? Oh, yeah, gets his kiss, doesn't he? And he said, if you have to face this demon, you have to face it. Even if we turn back today, we'll have to do it sometime. Yeah. So that kiss is just like... Is it an excuse to kiss her? Well, you know and what. To show his manliness. Yeah, he's, he's, he's tried already um, and she rebuffed him because she'd only known him 35 seconds. Mm. So she's known him two days now and he's got to first base. She's known him two days. She's told him about how her mother died because of a demon and they've both gone to release the demon from a World War Two tank. Okay, it's probably not quite taking her to the cinema and for a glass of wine, but it probably still does deserve <laughs> first burst. Even in the freezing cold, even in the blanket and snow, we had the sour whistle of fetid air escaping from the inside of the tank, and a smell came out of that Sherman, like I'd never smelled anywhere before. It had the stomach-turning sickliness of rotten food, mingled with an odour that reminded me of the reptile houses at zoos. I couldn't help retching, and Madame Cerise's rough red wine came swilling back up into my mouth. Madeline turned away and said, Mon Dieu! I tried to hold myself steady. Then I turned back to Father Anton and said, I've broken a hole through, Father. It smells really disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Father Anton crossed himself. It is the odour of Baal, he said, his face grey in the afternoon cold. Then he raised the crucifix higher and said, I conjure, bind and charge thee by Lucifer, Beelzebub, Sathanas, Yaukanil, and by their power and by the homage thou owest unto them, that you do torment and punish this disobedient demon until you make him come corporally to my sight, and obey my will and commandments in whatsoever I shall charge or command thee to do. Fiat, 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 amen. Madeline whispered, Dan, we could seal it up again. There's still time. <laughs> yeah, a bit late, Madeline. Yeah, I looked at the tiny hole out of which the polluted air still sang. And then how long before it gets out of here and comes after us? The thing killed your mother. If you really believe that, we have to get rid of it for good. Get rid of it, how? What are they on about? It never came out, but still managed to kill her mother. Yeah, yeah. He continues bashing away, he gets a crowbar, he manages to get the hatch open, and then he shines a flashlight in. He sees the interior of the tank, and he sees a black sack, dusty and mildewed, and sewn up like a mailbag or a shroud. It wasn't very large, maybe the size of a child or a bag of fertiliser. It was lying next to the side of the tank as if it had fallen there. It's a sack of bones. And again, he goes in, he retrieves it, and 
It says, I've got to say, the, the description of all this actually is really good, but I, ca I can't get past the fact that he's absolutely idiotic in actually doing this in the first place because they don't seem to have a plan for what they'll do with it. No. Once they get it out of there. What was he hoping that by taking it out, mm. what? Yeah. It would just go away. Yeah. It just, yeah. I wedged the flashlight against a hydraulic pipe so that it shone across the inside of the turret. And then I knelt down beside the sack. It took a lot of summoning up of nerve, but in the end I put my arms around the black, fusty cloth and lifted it a foot or so upwards. It was saggy, and whatever was inside it, the bones or whatever they were, tumbled to one of the end of the sack with a soft rattling sound. But the fabric didn't tear, and I was able to gather the whole thing up in my arms and lift it towards Madeline. She reached down and gripped the top of it, and I said, OK, heave. For one moment, for one terrifying moment, just as Madeline took the weight of the sack and hoisted it upwards, I was sure that I felt it wriggle as if there was something alive inside it. It could have been a bone shifting, or my own keyed-up imagination, but I took my hands away from that sack as fast as if it was burning. Madeline gasped, what is it? What's happened? Just get that sack out of here, quick, I yelled. <laughs> quick! So, they get it out. Father Anton is holding a crucifix in the Bible in front of him. His eyes are fixed upon it. At this point, they've got it out, and again, we get a lovely little bit of detail. And it says, I swung myself down from the hull of the tank and helped Madeline to jump down after me. I didn't know demons had bones, I remarked. I thought they were all in the mind. No, no, said Father Anton. There was a time in the Middle Ages when demons and gargoyles walked the earth as living creatures. There is too much evidence to refute it. Paul Lucas, the medieval traveller, tells us how he actually met the demon Asmodeus in Egypt, and the demon Samael was to have walked through the streets of Rouen as late as the 12th century. Love all that stuff. Poor Ruan. Yeah, yeah, gets it all, doesn't it? <laughs> so what do they do? Father Anton says, we could take it back to my house. I've got a cellar where we can lock it up. It seemed to be acquiescent enough for now. And Dan's like, yeah, all right. <laughs> like, for fuck's sake, Dan. So he, he just he just says, he yeah, all right. He had no plan. Like, what? We'll go and put it in my cellar. What would he have done if... Father Anton hadn't insisted on being picked up and going with them. Yeah, what would they have done with it? Dragging a 90-year-old man out at night Ugh. in the freezing, snowy countryside. Yeah. It turns out that the bag is just full of dust and bones. They take it down to Father Anton's cellar. And it turns out they're not just any old bones. It says there were narrow ribs, curved thigh bones, long claw-like metatarsals. They were dull, brown and porous and they looked as if they were six or seven hundred years old, or even more. It wasn't the bones of the body that frightened me so much, though they were grotesque enough in themselves. It was the skull. It had its jawbone missing, but it was a curious beak-like skull, with slanting eye sockets and a row of small, nib-like teeth. There were rudimentary horns at the back of the head, and if it hadn't been for the reptilian upper jaw, I would have said it was the skull of a goat. Father Anton took off his spectacles and closed them with a quiet click. He looked at us and his eyes were red from tiredness and cold, but his face was alive with human compassion and religious fortitude. He'd been a priest for seventy years, twice as long as either of us had been alive. Even though he was elderly, he had seen in those seventy years enough miracles and enough demonic fears to give him strength, where we had very little. It is just as I suspected. I raised an eyebrow. You suspected something? You mean you guessed what this was beforehand? He nodded. It was after we spoke, after we talked about the 13 tanks. I spent an hour or so looking through the Pseudo-Monarchia Daemonum, and I came across a small reference to Le Trier's Diable de Rouen. Once again, Rouen. Rouen got it fucking bad, didn't it? 
The 13 very demons. little there, very little information. Yeah. But it appears from what Jean Weir says that in 1045, the city of Rouen was terrorised by 13 devils which brought fire, pestilence, sorrow and disaster. They were the 13 acolytes of Adramelech, who was the eighth demon in the hierarchy of the evil Sephiroth and the Grand Chancellor of Hell. But what were 13 11th century devils doing in 13 American tanks in the Second World War? Mm. It doesn't make any sense. Father Anton shrugged. I don't know, Mr. McCook. Perhaps if we knew the answer to that, we would know the answer to everything. Madeline asked. What happened to the devils of Rouen? Does the book say? Oh, yes. They were imprisoned in a dungeon by a powerful spell imposed on them by the medieval exorcist Cornelius Prelati. The book is in medieval French, so it's a little difficult to decipher exactly how, or for how long. But it mentioned the word coude, which I thought at first meant that the devils were imprisoned very close together, rubbing shoulders. However, when I saw this sack, I realised there could be some connection. The French word coudre, as you may know, monsieur, means to sew up. Madeline whispered, the devils were sewn in bags, just like this one. Father Anton said nothing, but raised his hands as if to say, c'est possible. We stood around the bones for a long time in silence. Then Madeline said, well, what's to be done? Probably should have asked that question a little bit earlier on. And it looks like Father Anton is the only one who's been doing some pre-reading yeah. of to what could be in the tank. Yeah, Father Anton's done a bit of homework. Yeah. But, you know, probably should have done a bit more before he agreed to go along with them. But he said they have to spread the bones across the countryside as the Kabbalah recommends. But of course we cannot do it tonight. In any event, I shall have to call every one of the church authorities involved and ask for permission to bury the bones in such a way. That's going to take forever, I told him. Father Anton nodded. I know, but I'm afraid that it's necessary. I cannot simply bury the bones of a creature like this on sacred ground without the knowledge of the church. So, you know what? Maybe they should have had that discussion before they took a hammer, a chisel and a crowbar to the tank. Now, could he have contacted the the different churches and priests before, or was it not until he saw the bag that he realised what it was? Maybe we have to give them the ben. Well, we have to give Anton perhaps the benefit of the doubt, perhaps. But at this point, they go for some cake and Calvados, because obviously Calvados. Then Dan drives Madeline home, gets a snog, then goes back to play chess with Father Anton and ruminate on the nature of demons. And Anton explains that they're going to need to administer the seven tests. Mm. Question for Phil. Do we find out what the seven tests are? No. No. <laughs> they're never mentioned again. <laughs> they're not. They're not <laughs> never mentioned again. <laughs> so, chapter three, which should be subtitled, Fuck Around, Find Out. Because they fuck around with that tank, and by gum, they find out. So, does chapter three, Phil, definitively prove that their plan was a massive pile of shit? It certainly does. It really does. Amongst other things, there are so many bits that come up in chapter three, and you're going, why didn't you think of trying that before? Yeah. Why didn't you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. This, this, everything that's hap- going to happen for the rest of this book, they have brought upon themselves. So Dan stays with Father Anton. They've put the bag of bag of bones in the cellar and they go yak over fags for a bit and then just go to bed. Again, question. Was putting the sack of bones in the cellar and saying a prayer over them a more robust plan 
than leaving him in a tank that was consecrated as a steel tomb sealed by a shady English priest in 1944, apparently knew what he was doing. No. No, it won't, was it? Because even though there was no windows in the cellar room that he locked them in, we don't know what what prayers were said over them when they were put in, No. what seals were put in. No. And we know the reverend who sealed up the tank after, should they not have spoke to him? Yeah. Even before they've sealed up the tank, we have to assume that this Reverend Walters... Reverend Taylor. Taylor. This Reverend Taylor must have been involved in binding the 13 demons into the 13 tanks in the first place. So the, the, the demons have already been bound into the tanks by some supernatural method. The sealing up of the tank and leaving it on a, an old lane for another 30 years was a further kind of le- line of defence. And they've just smashed it all wide open, <laughs> just just through being curious and stupid. You say they, I reckon that Madeline and Anton, Father Anton, would have had nothing to do with it without our protagonist. Well, very Dan. true. Very true. And it does make you think, is he just doing this all along? But had Madeline been ugly, would he even still be there? Would he even be interested in this tank? Probably not. He probably would have just moved on. But all that aside, the actual story as it progresses is very well written. Oh, yeah. It's all right. It's all right. But I, I do think from here onwards, it starts to fail to fulfil the promise set up in the first two chapters. Now, we haven't got to chapters four and five yet, and we'll do that next week. But let's talk about chapter three, because Father Anton finds out the hard way that he should have perhaps been a little bit more circumspect about his decision to say, all right, kids, let's do this. I'll go along with you. And not only that, his poor housekeeper, Antoinette, um, doesn't come out of it particularly well either, does she? Yeah, but I like the bit before all that happens where the demon starts talking to Dan. Yeah. I do like that. Yeah, so Dan hears something during the night and something's on the other side of his bedroom door. So he plucks up some bottle and he bursts out of his bedroom door a hand with a candlestick and he knows there's something going on. He knows that the demon isn't isolated to the cellar. So he goes to wake Anton up and it all basically goes downhill from there. And he has a lengthy conversation with the devil, sorry, with the demon. And when he wakes Anton up, he's having the conversation with the demon through Anton's body and he finds out that actually the devil has scooped out Anton and is using him as a vessel and his guts are all over the floor. And fortunately, he finds out that the the lock of hair from the sacrificed child that Eloise gave him is legit, and it protects him. Now, there's quite a lot goes on in these pages, but it's all probably nicely summarised by the fact that because he's on an elastic band back to Madeline, he goes to Madeline the following morning to tell her what's happened. But we do find out about this lock of hair, and it's ever so slightly confusing the power of this lock of hair, because the demon says that... Yes, this lock of hair will protect you, but it'll only protect you once. Otherwise, you'll need to sacrifice another child and get a fresh lock of hair. For the firstborn. He uses his lock of hair. So saying you can only use this lock of hair once, it just seems to be the case that he's got it, so it'll work. But later on it says it only works during the day or something. Anyway, a little bit confused about the power of this lock of hair. Only for 24 hours from sun up to sundown or something like that. I mean, before he used that, and you go back to some of what the demon was saying, it it was almost like he was trying to be very crude. Oh, he was being very, very lewd. 
Talking and... about Madeline's bubs or her inner folds of her sex. Yeah. And about having intercourse with animals and reptiles. So he was a, pro- a proper nasty demon. Yeah, he's quite foul-mouthed, isn't he? Yeah. Probably his conversation with Madeline sums up what he learns during this pretty horrendous period interacting with this demon. So he goes back to the farm the following morning and Jack Passerelle's there just, you know, probably chilling out over a cow of and smoking a fag. And he says, uh, Madeline is milking the cows. So he goes around and uh, he says, I was so exhausted that I leaned my head against the frame of the cowshed door. And when I spoke, I could only manage a dull, tired monotone. I felt as if I'd been gutted like a herring and left to drain on somebody's sink. The devil broke out somehow. I heard it in the night. I went downstairs and it had killed Father Anton. Then it killed Antoinette in front of my eyes to prove its power. Madeline came across the shed and touched my shoulder. Dan, you're not serious, please. I lifted my head and looked at her. How serious do I have to be? I was there. I saw the devil cut Father Anton open, and I saw him kill Antoinette. It says its name is Elmec, the devil of sharp knives. It said that if we didn't help it find its brethren, it would cut us to pieces as well. I can't believe what you're saying. Well, you'd better damn well believe it, because it's true. If you don't want to end up like Antoinette, you'd better find some way of making your excuses to your father and getting yourself an indefinite vacation. She frowned. What do you mean? I mean that all the time we have is the time that the devil decides to grant us. It insists we help it find its brethren, and we're only going to stay alive as long as we appear to be cooperating. It wants to leave for England this afternoon. If we leave at eight, we can just catch the ferry at Dieppe. Madeline looked completely confused. Dan, I can't just walk out of here. What can I say to Papa? I'm supposed to help here. I was so tired and upset that I was near to tears. Madeline, I insisted. I wouldn't ask you if it wasn't deadly serious. If you won't make your excuses to your father, then I'll have to go and tell him the truth. But Dad, it seems so unreal. Don't you think I feel the same way? I asked her. Don't you think I'd rather get on with my damn work and forget this thing ever happened? But I've seen it for myself, Madeline. It's real. And we're both in danger of death. So now he's taking it all super serious. And of course he wants to take Madeline with him. But fortunately, Mr. Passerelle is pretty laid back about all this. Like Dan's only known him for two days or something. But he's like, yeah, okay, to his daughter, buggering off to England with the bloke that freed the demon from the tank, the tank that killed his missus, and take it to England so they can track down the priest that sealed it in the tank in the first place, and find 12 other demons, and they'll figure out a way to sort it all out later. Hopefully, with the English priest's help, if he's still alive. And also, he's not telling her why the demon wants him along. Yeah. The demon's just said, I can cut her up. Yeah. But I think she could be a virgin. I could be very off the mark, uh, uh. but he's... The fact he talks about her in a very explicit way yeah. and sacrifice, I just feel that sacrifice is on her cards. Yeah, when when scooped out Father Anton Demon is talking to him, he's constantly referring back to Madeline, isn't he? So Madeline is important to the demon yes. in some way. i got to say, though, if I was that English priest and they turned up to tell me that story, I'd be pretty fucking miffed, especially if they had the sack of bones in the back of the car <gasps> on my drive as well. It's like... Rocking up on your drive and saying, all right, you know that demon you sealed in a tank 30 years ago? Uh, we let it out and we've got it in the back of the car. Can you help? <laughs> you fucking wankers. <laughs> what are you doing to me? But before they set off, he talks to Eloise again. And obviously he's, he's like, have you got anything else? The hair's not going to work for much longer. Yeah. So she gives him some Jesus dust. <laughs> 
<laughs> or is it the shroud? Yeah, the shroud. Yeah, part of the, the what did she call it? The oh, the vanishing shroud or something. Something to do with Jesus. Yeah, but that might come in handy later. But that seems to be like the most important thing ever, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But even then, she gives him it, and she's and she says, um, you know, I've got to say, a lot of these things are absolute guff. And not, re- and not really real things. It's said to be the ashes of the seamless cloak which Christ wore when he was crucified. It's the most powerful relic I have. What will it do? Will it protect us? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Some some relics have real magical properties and some are simply frauds. Yeah. So this is all I can do. Yeah. There you go. It might work. It might not. Yeah. Yeah, <sighs> yeah the, the seamless cloak which Christ wore when he was crucified. Yeah. Mm, it's the most powerful relic I have. Well, have you got any that are almost as powerful, but you know, let's no. hedge our bets a little bit. And you know, definitely work. <laughs> yeah, if, if there's like a one in ten chance of it being bullshit, can we take can we take the slightly less powerful ones as well? Just so we can like hedge our bets. Yeah. But it turns out, um is what's the name of the demon? Elmech. Elmech. Elmech the demon. So Elmech. Of knives and sharp uh, things. Yeah, the demon of knives and sharp things. So Elmec wants to be transported over to England in a big old metal cabinet of copper and other odds and sods, um, like really ancient sort of antique thing. So they sling the sack of bones in it, the car- they drag it to the back of the Citroen, they put it in the Citroen, and then they go off and catch a ferry from Dieppe. And i got to say, I did identify a little bit with the descriptions of, of the ferry going across a grim dull channel <laughs> having rubbish food on the ferry <laughs> yeah been there haven't we yeah so so they have some shit some shit lunch on the ferry or dinner on the ferry and they get over there and they decide that and this is this is a classic bit of Carl Cthulhu this it's like right how do we track this priest down the library will have some kind of clerical book and I can't remember what they refer to it as but it's some guy's name <gasps> And it's like Jeff's big book of priests or something. Crockford's clerical directory. Yeah, yeah, Jeff Crockford. I'm just using shorthand. You know, good old Jeff. Yeah, Jeff Jeff Crockford's <laughs> clerical directory, and uh, and they find him. So they set off and they drive through some villages and they go to. Because he's only a few kilometres. That's handy, isn't it? Is it? He's eight miles up the road. Yeah, yeah. So the dock at Newhaven. They go to the library, and it turns out that he's eight miles away. Oh, and then when they say he's at Strudhoe, oh dear, that's even closer. Three miles. <laughs> nice. That all worked out really, really nicely. Very handy when you've got an evil demon in your boot. Yeah. So, they find him, and we didn't read chapter four. <laughs> I can't believe you've gone on. Yeah. So, at this point, we'll have to leave that as a cliffhanger, Bill. Chapters one to three, the first three-fifths of The Devils of D-Day, what do you think of the story so far? So, it's got some really interesting, provoking, grabbing text oh. that he describes. He describes where you are really well. In France, he he took me there, yeah. but he just as easily took me out of it when he came up with the most stupid plan yeah. with no actual plan. Yeah. It's only... His one and only thing was to open the tank. Yeah, yeah. It's a great setup. It's really vivid. It's really evocative. I love the idea that the whole setup, the whole idea 
of the Allies binding 13 demons into 13 black Sherman tanks that terrified German soldiers and rolled them up like a carpet. I love the fact that it's set in places that we've been and spent a lot of time. I can't say that we ate a lot of onion soup while we are over there. I do like French onion soup. I like French onion soup. (laughs) Next time we go, we need to just get some homemade French onion soup. Love it all. Love all that stuff. It... The fact that they open the tank out of sheer stupidity perhaps does undermine some of the good stuff. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's a, a, a fast read pulp novel. And it's and it, it just goes from being a really quite nice, sort of horrific setup to another stuff with a dialogue with a demon when it's in Father Anton's body is. I don't think I liked it as much as you did. And the fact that um, they're now basically being blackmailed into performing this mission for them, and they're in a posi- it's a position that they never ever would have been in had they any of them had an ounce of sense. What did I like? You said that you like. You said earlier that you liked the de- that when the demon. <laughs> no, no, no. At the conversation. No, yeah, before he got to Father Anton, I didn't like that bit oh. where he saw the like the little child crouched outside. Father Anton's door, oh. and that's the second time he'd seen that figure right, yeah. that wasn't quite a child. Yeah. That's the image that I really liked. Yeah. The stuff he was saying, not so much. Yeah, I, I, I don't think the dialogue's particularly spooky. No. I thought it was all a bit tacky. Yeah, um, but great setup. And over the next week or so, we'll read the rest of it and discuss yeah. that and put that out as well. I mean, did you not find the image of the small? That's really creepy. creepy. Yeah. The, like you say, the dialogue didn't go with the image. No. And if that was to be translated onto the big telly, onto the big screen, sorry, the picture of that could be absolutely amazing. Yeah. I'd drop the, I'd drop the dialogue yeah. and just have the image. Yeah, yeah. The bit where it gets to the dialogue, it's like, hey, 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 yeah, I'll stab her in the fanny. And yeah. Last, yeah. Look what yeah. I can do. I, I'm Not the, so good. I'm the demon of knives. I can stick knives up her. Yeah. Sex and yeah, yeah. you know you want to do that as well, and yeah. it's just like you know what we don't need this. Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that the the demon just turns out to be some kind of sounds like a fifteen year old internet pervert, you know, trying to trying to troll someone on Twitter. Yeah, not so yeah. good. Not so good. But great setup, and that was part one, and we shall come back for part two. But right now, I think. We need to drink a load of leftover wine from the restaurant last night. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we so, didn't do very good at uh, finishing a bottle, did we? No, we didn't. So thanks, Phil. We'll get back together over the next few days and we'll uh, we'll do the other half of this book. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for all of the birthday good wishes and also hope that Michael Morcott had a lovely birthday. Hmm. Yeah, cool. Massive thanks to Phil for hitting the sauce with me and talking devils, D-Day and all that other guff on our actual birthday. Thanks to Mike as ever for his books and inspiration. And thanks to Pops for kicking off my imagination with all those tatty old paperbacks. Before we go, thanks as ever to our patrons. And of course, season's best wishes. First, those without tear. Anthony Picanti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster, and Sebastian Weetabix. Seb, thanks for the recommendation of The Gas by Charles Platt. 
When I looked for a copy, it turns out they're fairly rare and highly prized, but I did find a copy of that Savoy edition that didn't entirely break the bank. So more on that in the future. And once again, happy birthday to your alter ego on Christmas Eve. Next, thanks to our chaos engineers, Andrew C. Cluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Jim Kirkland, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Lee Gary, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And thanks to our Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Jason Connolly. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby. And by the way, Volume 2 of Andy's Chronicles of the Monkey God is available now. Clarky the Cruel, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Janie Stim, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Liam Jay, Miles Reed Lobato, Mark Main, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron, Norman Beresford, and our very own Derry and Tom's Angel, Robert McMillan. Right, enough yakking. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruinsoutlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. You can listen to Breakfast in the Ruins radio via the internet, most easily via Radio Garden. Just search BITR Breakfast in the Ruins or look at the Bradford UK blob on Radio Garden's map. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But that's it for now. The cheese footballs are calling me, so we're headed off to get sloshed, watch crap telly, and maybe go out for some nice dinner. So take care, stay safe, have a terrific break, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.